Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of God. Thanks, Greg. Have you ever put something from Ikea together? You're maybe like 60% of the way through, right? And you realize to your horror that you've used the wrong screw because none of those things are labeled adequately anyway. Or you've inverted the front and back of a panel on your cabinet or something like that. And literally the only way to put it together correctly is to disassemble the entire thing, every single piece, and start over from the beginning. This has happened more times to me than I can count. I mean, who in here doesn't actually and literally feel contempt and nausea when you see this guy, right? I do. Well, we are still early on in our time together as a church. Trinity Community Church is still less than a year old. Hard to believe that. And we don't want to get too far in and realize that we've ignored the clear instructions given to us by our visionary, by our founder, by our Lord, by Jesus. We don't want to ignore the instructions about how this thing is built. So we've taken three weeks to sort of tease this out a little bit. And so I want to I ask a few questions this morning. I want to ask some questions that will, some of these will be review for us from the last couple of weeks, and some will be uh, brand new things that, that we haven't quite covered yet. So the first question that we want to ask this morning is why even do church? Why do church? For the last couple of weeks, we've been able to sort of land in a central text and answer the question that we've been asking from a central text. We're not going to be afforded that same opportunity today, so we're going to kind of have like a deluge of uh, New Testament texts throughout our time together. That's not our typical practice here. If you're visiting today, typically we like to work through books of the Bible, um, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. But for the last couple of weeks, we've been kind of um, getting, away with, uh, getting away from that and away with that uh, for the sake of just sort of bringing some clarity to the structure of the church. So, why even do church? And I'd like to answer that question with a question. So can someone say yes to the church, yes to Jesus, but no to the church? Can someone say yes to Jesus, but no to the church? I mean, wouldn't it be a whole lot easier for all of us if we could just take Jesus without the church? In, in the chart-topping bestseller, The Shack, by William Young, came out maybe a decade ago, we hear the Jesus character claiming to not like religion. This character also rejects the notion that he, the Jesus character, created institutions like the church, for instance. He claims that the church we see, like what we're operating in right now, the church we see is just a man-made system. Then the Jesus character goes on to describe the church he came to build. And he says he came to build one that was all about relationships, and simply sharing life. 
But are these relationships enough? Can you say yes to Jesus and no to the institution, the church? Or can we just be the church without all this production and hassle and effort of understanding church government and coming together week after week after week? Well, I apologize for doing this two weeks in a row. But to answer this question, I'd like to quickly ask you to geek out with me for just a moment about the original Greek in the New Testament. So maybe we can just Greek out together and not geek out together, okay? The Greek word for church is this. It's ekklesia. It means public assembly. So when you see the word church or hear the word church, you should think public assembly. The very essence of the word church means to come together. The ecclesia, the church, was Jesus' idea, contrary to the, the loose theology that the character of Jesus in the shack portrays. It's actually what Jesus came to give his life for. I think German martyr Dietrich Bonhoeffer was spot on when he said this. He says, the body of Christ can only be a visible body or else it is not a body at all. The body of Christ takes up space on earth and becomes visible to the world as it gathers around the word. So it's this tangible, accessible, touchable thing that, that Jesus gave his life for. John Stott takes it even a little bit further. And there's where my uh, notes went out of order, right there. Good. Uh, He says this, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God, not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church. That is, to call out of the world a people, not just individuals, but a people for his own glory. In other words, the church isn't just take it or leave it for Jesus. It isn't peripheral, it's central. And it should be for us important for us, both on the macro level as a group and on the micro level as individuals. It's not take it or leave it. So here's the way Paul describes the love a husband ought to have for his wife in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church, the assembly of believers, and he gave himself up for her. So it's here that we find the first answer to the question, why do church? Why come together week after week, month after month, year after year? Well, first, it's the very essence of the word and ethos of the word, church. It's literally a gathering. But beyond that, and even more fundamentally than the etymology of the word, its source, it's because the church isn't primarily an educational institution. It's not just a weekly data transfer of religious information. If it was, And sure, you can just get that disembodied and online somewhere. But spiritual formation occurs in embodied relationships. This is how we become like Christ. By gathering. Not just to sit and listen, but to stand and serve. To sharpen and be sharpened by real people who really love Jesus. So we're compelled to gather because Jesus' body was ripped to shreds that we might be put back together by gathering together with his people. You can see it there in Ephesians 5. God's call for you to be faithful to a local church is rooted in redemption itself. And we don't care so much if you're committed to this church 
so much as that you're committed to a church. We'd love for you to be a part of what's going on here. But your church attendance and participation in the mission are not insignificant. They are not rote duty. Sunday gatherings, church life, mission, they're rooted in the redemption of your great Messiah. Jesus gave himself up for us, the church. You've been granted access to the throne of God. What? The throne of God. Not just so that you can enjoy it in private, but so that you'd glory in it together with your church family. Each of us, not neglecting to meet together, but instead consistently and routinely meeting together, edifying one another, building one another up through word and deed and song. Here's what Mike Cosper said. He's a, he's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. He said the gathering is a unique, not as an encounter with God, since God's presence is a constant comfort and help to the Christian. It's unique as an encounter with God, intensified among the people of God, filled with the Spirit of God, spurring one another along in the mission of God. It's communal, not individualistic. Christ in me meets Christ in you. The gathering should be a place where believers are built up and encouraged in the midst of the various trials and circumstances in their lives. So when we gather, we sing to each other. We declare the truths of the gospel to one another. Our presence and our participation is not merely for the sake of our individual relationship with God, but it's also for our brothers and our sisters' sake. Our participation in the gathering is testimony and encouragement to them. When you sing, you are speaking the truth and love to the church around you. And your bold confession of faith might be exactly what someone nearby needs to hear in the midst of his or her dark hours. But some of us, some of us don't treat church in this way, though, do we? Some of us came in today looking to suck something out of someone else. Of course, you don't think in those terms. No one does. But you, you did come hoping to get without any thought of what you might give. Look, I, I get it. You've come out of a hard week. You're tired. Maybe you're really lonely. But do you know what Jesus' ironic response is to that? He says, come give of yourself. When you have nothing left to give by my spirit, through grace, come give. Come with eyes open, hands and hearts poised and ready to serve and to refuel those around you. Come ready to serve. And do you know what? When that happens, you can bet that your own soul is going to be refreshed and renewed. As ironic as it seems, if you come week after week after week, hoping that someone comes to you, that someone will take pity on you, that someone's going to track you down. If that's your tack on Sundays, I bet your soul is shriveling up. I bet you're pretty discouraged, depressed even. It's, become, it's because you're coming for the wrong reasons. Turn your gaze outward and see how God might fill that void through your own selfless service. Every once in a long while, we'll get a gift card to a totally legit restaurant. I mean like one of those legit ones where the dude puts the napkin in your lap. Nobody really wants or needs service like that, I don't think. But I think some of us in here tend to think of the church like this. It's like a nice restaurant where we come in and sit down so that you can take care of me. Put the napkin in my lap and take care of me. Bring me what I want. But like we've said, 
Jesus' vision, vision for the church isn't so much it serving you, but you serving her. Some of us need to stop with this. I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And instead start saying things like, you know what? I'm here and my family is here. And we're going to serve in any way possible to make this place stronger, better, and fuller with the presence of Jesus. We're going to come even when it's hard. We're going to come when we don't feel like it. So that the community around us might see and that God might be glorified. That's when the church becomes the church. The alternative is this. The alternative is that we just all sit around to a whole bunch of sermons for decades and never actually grow at all. That's not how this is designed to be. Come gather with us. Gather with the focus of your eyes facing out and the posture of your heart facing up, asking God how and who you might serve around you. So why do church? Because Jesus loves the church and gave himself for it. Second, who's the boss of the church? Who's the boss? Jesus is the head of this church. Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and himself is its savior. Colossians 1.18, Christ is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Ephesians 4, grow up in every way into him, Jesus, who is the head, into Christ, from him, from whom the whole body makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. So for you and me, our, our physical bodies, nourishment comes in through our heads. Our brains tell us where to find it and how to go get it, directing our bodies every move. And then after we've secured that nourishment, we put it into our mouths and it filters down into our bodies and it fuels us. Well, it's the same with the church. It's like a body that gets its leadership and its nourishment from its head, from Jesus. And so because Jesus, because our head is divine, we shouldn't be operating like a merely human organization will operate. There's a divine ought to about the church and how we operate. And that comes from Jesus. So we, we deeply here at Trinity, we want to honor and obey his every word. All of our structures and our practices here should be governed and led and nurtured by Jesus as our living head. So who's the boss? Jesus. And this leads us to where we've been for the last couple of weeks, the leaders in the church. Who are the leaders of the church? Well, God calls some members of the congregation to feed and lead the church. The New Testament calls them elders or pastors or overseers. All of those are terms that, uh, that mean the same thing. Typically, you'll hear them referred to as pastors here at Trinity, uh, but all of those offices mean the same thing, like bride and wife mean the same thing. So we all have this equal access to God's throne. In other words, I don't get any kind of special treatment from God just because I'm a pastor. But just because that's true, just because I don't get special treatment like you don't get special treatment, just because that's true doesn't mean he hasn't carved out certain roles in the church to help lead the church. God calls some, some of us, but not all of us, to serve as the spiritual leaders of the church. And he calls for the church to submit to them. And this is why all those character demands that we've been going over for the last two weeks are so critically important for us. 
Because God calls you to this in Hebrews 13. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider their outcome, the outcome of their life and imitate their faith. Hebrews 13, 17, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as men who will give an account. 1 Thessalonians 5, we beseech you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you, who are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So it's saying that we have an authority over us. We have pastors over us that set the direction and the pace. And I say us because as a member, I sit under their collective authority as well. I can't go rogue and do what I want. You should be thankful for that. That's not how it works. But these pastors are a God-given spiritual authority in the church. So who are the leaders? The pastors. If you'd like more on this, you can check out the sermon from two weeks ago where we went more uh, in depth on this. Fourth today, who are the official servants of the church? Well, we went in depth on this last week. But every church needs qualified deacons who serve the church in an official, official capacity. They're the leading servants. If pastors are called to proclamation of the gospel, deacons are called to demonstration of the gospel. Deacons are servants. Servant is literally what the word deacon means. These are servants who work hard to reduce the friction of the practical aspects of ministry to allow the gears of mission to roll forward. So just like the apostles, if you remember in Acts 6 last week is where we went, they delegated specific practical responsibilities to these deacons in Acts 6. So the pastors are called to delegate certain aspects of practical responsibility so that they can be free to focus on their own calling. Now deacons do not wield any kind of pastoral authority. They're tasked with showing mercy and helping us run smoothly and demonstrate the gospel. They're not a decision-making body. They answer to the pastoral team. And the pastoral team, as we'll see in a moment, answers to the church as a whole, to the church body. Listen, deacons do not play second fiddle to pastors in any way, okay? They are gifts to our church, gifts with a very specific calling. And if our pastors are operating with the posture that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, then the, the missional handoffs between these two groups of people should be really beautiful and help us help us really operate well and in a healthy way as a church. So who are the lead servants? The deacons. Fifth this morning, who are the ministers in the church? Who are the ministers? Now maybe you're like, what? Ministers? Aren't those, aren't those just the pastors? Isn't that what we pay you to do, to be the minister? Well, yes and no. I'm not sure how this strikes you, but here's the radical truth about Jesus' church. All the members of Christ's body are the ministers. All the members of the church are ministers. Every Christian is a minister. You can't not be one. Sorry for the double negatives, all you English nerds out there. You can't not be a minister if you are a Christian. The word minister does not define my pastoral office or role in this church. It defines my function. Not a role, but a function as a member of this church. And it defi defines your function as a member of this church too. Ephesians 4.12 says that pastors and teachers exist to equip the saints, catch this, for the work of the ministry. Newsflash, if you didn't know this, own this man. You guys are saints. You are saints in Jesus. And you are here to do the work of the ministry. 
Every one of us, every single one of us has a role to play. We have a gift to give. Each one of us has something that if you don't offer it, if you don't offer it to the church, we'll be worse off for not having it. So dig in. Dig in deep and, to see, and see what your gifts are, how you might serve the church. So what does this mean for you practically as an individual at the micro level? It means if you see, to, see a need, fill it. But I'm not talking just about like plugging the physical organizational holes that you see. I mean the spiritual and relational ones too. If there's a weaker brother or sister around you, invite them to coffee. Dig into their lives. Get to know them. Just be friends. Maybe they're not weaker. Maybe they're stronger. doesn't matter. Labor with them as you strive after Christ. It means that you invite someone like you or unlike you into your home. You feed them. You treat them like the royalty God says they are in Jesus. You enjoy the evening to the max. Barriers are broken. Friends are gained. And you've ministered to Christ's body. Very literally, you've done the work of the ministry. It means your instinct should never be, ah, we'll just let the pastors do that. Now, sometimes pastoral involvement may be necessary. But God's called you to do the work of the ministry, us collectively as the church. Jesus calls all of us to relentless gospel ministry. So, who are the ministers? All of us. Six, where is the authority in the church? Where's the authority? Under Jesus, the membership is the final authority in the church. So that's us, collectively. We collectively are the authority. Now, I may be a pastor, but I'm a member first. I'm a sheep before I'm a shepherd. Now, I don't mean in any way that our members are above the Scriptures, because the Scriptures are very literally God's Word, so we all stand in submission to those. But here's what I mean. The congregation and not the pastors is the ultimate authority in the local church. It's the body that settles the serious matters of faith and life, the serious matters. I mean, we're probably not going to have a vote to see what kind of paper we're going to buy and print things on. Dunder Mifflin and Staples aren't showing up on your next ballot. But do you know what will? Issues like pastors and deacons, finances, bringing on new members, Loving discipline of disobedient ones who are walking away from Jesus. The local church is the ultimate body that settles these matters of life and faith. And we see this played out a little bit in two different New Testament texts. First in Matthew 18, 15 to 17, where we'll see that the church, and not the pastors, the church is the last court of appeal in church discipline. It goes like this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Don't tell it to anyone else. Between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained a brother. But if he does not listen, take a couple others with you, that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, then you tell it to the church, the gathered assembly. Same thing happening in the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 5. He says this, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present in the power of the Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Now this is, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this may sound a little harsh to you, some harsh language. But it should give you an idea for how white-hot God's wrath is against sin. 
and for how protective he is for his bride. That's us, the church. We're, we're Jesus' bride. He's not interested in letting anything endanger his bride. He's willing to be harsh to a wrongdoer to save his bride, just as you would do, guys, I suspect, if someone was flirting with your wife. Hey, man, stay away from her. She's mine. Not in the wrong kind of sense, but she's mine. And if you keep flirting, I'm coming after you. You want to protect your wife, your bride. It's a reflection of your deep love for her. And just briefly there, I want you to take a a note of the beautiful heart even behind the holy harshness that's in that text from 1 Corinthians 5. The whole goal of this, look at that last sentence, is so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Jesus wants to both protect his bride and to rescue this wayward man. It's a sweet picture of God's love for us and his bearing with our weakness. But anyway, the church, the congregation, is the final court of appeal in matters of church discipline where decisions about membership are being made. We believe this is the most basic fundamental authority in a church because of Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. There's one implication of this. And the implication is this, that the church would use its authority to recognize and affirm gifted, called, and qualified leaders. And that the congregation would voluntarily put themselves into uh, submission to these positions of leadership and that they'll voluntarily support that leadership by learning from their teaching and following their leadership. I'm not sure, but maybe this sounds a little bit contradictory to you. Like, how can you have an authoritative congregation while at the same time having them submit to the leaders that it calls? It's because of this, because the corporate authority of the congregation is to hold in high esteem, the highest esteem possible, the the doctrinal and moral boundaries around the offices of church leadership. And these are the things that we've gone into the weeds with for the last couple of weeks. Um, That's how important we think it is here. But the congregation is called to hold those things high and keep the leadership accountable to those descriptions in 1 Timothy 3. And if leaders begin to swerve from those character qualities, man, it is on you to call us back. And if we ignore your call, it's up to you to get rid of us. Like that's, that's how deep your authority goes. So it's my prayer that our leadership will lead, inspire, model, and mobilize all of us to sprint toward Christ in his book. It's my prayer that each of us will submit to that leadership. In this sense, then, the, congregation, the congregational authority and strong leadership under that authority are not incompatible. There's this vital biblical tension that we, that we shouldn't let go of. Now, if you're sort of a, a red-blooded, power-hungry, democracy-loving American, this may sound like a really good setup for you. Good, I can throw my weight around a little bit in this place. But all of us should remember that all of us are under this collective authority. The ultimate point of this, of membership, isn't, isn't so much to be a check and balance on the pastors as it is to be a check and balance on all of us, on each of us. When we become members of a church, we each as individuals submit to the corporate authority. So when you join the church, don't think of it as like joining the why that you all probably did on January 1st and have been once since. Um, Don't think of it as joining a YMCA where you get to pick and choose from a smorgasbord of options. No, you don't pay your dues here to get a set of perks here. 
more than joining a church, you're submitting to it. I'm submitting to it. It's no different for me as a pastor. I'm submitting myself to the corporate whole, to your love and grace and discipline. I need you. This is a good thing because if one of us starts acting in a way that's sort of contrary to Jesus, we all have some leverage to tell the world that this person isn't one of us, not in a, not in a mean or a harmful way, but we want to tell the world that he's not actually a representative of Jesus as far as we can tell because he, he's gone rogue. And, and we can tell the world that though he's present with us and we love him and we're glad he's here to learn, he's not actually a member of our church either because he's not representing Jesus well. So it does protect the this aspect of our church life, it protects the reputation of Jesus. But it's also a safeguard for each of us. Man, if I am wandering, I am begging you, please hunt me down. Track me down. Don't let me go. Beg me to come back. I gladly, joyfully, happily submit my life to you. And I hope you'll do the same in church membership so that in the event that any of us walk away from Jesus, we can be pulled back by the whole in a loving way. Look, my eternity's on the line, and so is yours. I need you, and you need each other. We need each other. So when you join, you submit, and you submit to this kind of love and grace. It's going to humbly, graciously, lovingly hunt you down if you go rogue or disappear. So who has the ultimate authority this side of Jesus? It's the congregation. It's the church members. So far then, Christ is the head of the church, Pastors lead the church. Deacons serve it in an official capacity. All the members of the church body are the ministers. And these members, as a congregation, are the final authority in the church under Christ. That is, and and all of them operate collectively under the word. Finally here, in conclusion, what is the future of the church? What is our future? Very simply this. It's sure and it is strong. Our future is sure and strong. Matthew 16, 18. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus isn't going to get halfway into this thing and realize he did it wrong. Have to disassemble it and start over. He is a finisher. In the end, every single piece of Ikea furniture ever made is going to burn. But the church won't burn. Jesus has been putting this thing together perfectly, and he will not let it go. He's going to hold us fast, individually and collectively, until the end. He's not messing around. He's going to complete what he started. He's going to use you and me to do that. Now, Trinity Community Church, this little manifestation of Jesus' big church, uh, global church, it may come and go. I don't know what the future is for us, but I do know that Jesus' church, his people, will last all the way until the end. And you can sink all your hopes in that this morning. I know you look around you and the situation of our world, our political situation looks bleak. But hear this this morning from that, from that old hymn. Though the wrong seems often so strong, and it does, God is the ruler yet. He has not let us go. His church will prevail Because of Jesus, death is dead. Sin is defeated. And all of us, all of us in Christ will be made whole forever. But until that day, until that day, let's not forget that 
although we didn't necessarily choose one another. We didn't. God brought us to this place in his own way. Though we did not choose one another, we have been given to each other by Jesus. He intends for us, get this, he intends for us to stay together for good. Not to hit the eject button when things are getting difficult or irritating or boring. And when we stay together, we are better for it. And so is the watching world. God has put, it, put us together for good. So go be of some good. Be of some good right here to these people at Trinity. Be of some good to the people of Abington. And through Trinity and through your good that's done here in Abington, we can be, uh, be of some good all the way around the world. God has called us together for good. And I hope you'll join us with that at Trinity. Will you pray with me? Lord, thanks for calling us together. Thank you for my brothers and sisters in here who have loved me and cared for me, who have confronted me, who have pushed me towards Christ. I pray that my experience would be everyone's experience in here, that they would get to, to, to feel and sense the arms of Jesus wrapping around them through the ministers of Trinity Community Church, through our members. Lord, thanks for loving us in this way. Amen.